This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme. Humanitarian assistance is one part of the equation and that needs to be supported, but we can't substitute for the work that's needed to save the economy, to make sure that people have livelihoods. The compassion of the host countries in the South toward refugees internally displaced is a shameful example to the United States and countries in the North who are closing their borders. You see the kind of populist rhetoric and the xenophobia and racism and so on infecting what was supposedly advanced democracies. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. We're going to have Another look back at the year that was 2021. Last week we had the journalists year. Now it's time to look at the year for humanitarians. I think we would all say this has been a challenging, challenging year for anyone who works for an aid agency. I'm joined by Shabia Mantu of the UN Refugee Agency and Rupert Colville of UN Human Rights, and as ever, our analyst, Daniel Warner. Maybe let's start, because it is going to be the elephant or the groundhog that we never get rid of, and that is COVID. We were talking last week with my journalist colleagues about how it's just coloured our lives professionally and personally. So we really should talk about it from the humanitarian point of view as well. Shabia, I'll, I'll start with you. How has the pandemic affected the work of the refugee agency? Thank you, Imogen. Um, the, the pandemic has been a crisis on top of a crisis uh, for us, um, for refugees, for forcibly displaced people. So we, we started the year actually inheriting a lot of uh, the huge challenges and, and the damage that was inflicted by the pandemic. Um, so we were into the second year of the pandemic this year. Uh, we saw really um, critical life-threatening um, risks and issues that the pandemic uh, really brought up to refugees and other displaced people, in addition to all the health impacts. In Bangladesh, where around three-quarters of a million Rohingya from Myanmar are in camps, youth activists are teaching refugee children about the importance of proper hygiene. We also saw really drastic measures um, that were imposed under the pretext of the pandemic to stop people from claiming asylum. You had countries closing their borders shut uh, to some without letting those that were were in danger uh, access their their territory. Are EU countries using the COVID-19 emergency to clamp down on refugees? We saw worsening poverty among refugee households, and so then they had to contend with a whole host of other health, socioeconomic, and human rights issues that they were facing with on a daily basis. And then this year as well, when there was a glimmer of hope with vaccines, uh, we then had to face the challenge of vaccine inequity for uh, refugee displaced and other marginalized populations. So it's it's been um, absolute uh, chaos and, and, and damage. But in saying that, I think we've also, as a humanitarian agency, and as many of other humanitarian partners have had to, we've adapted our programs. Our colleagues have stayed on the ground uh, during the, the most excruciating and, and difficult circumstances to deliver aid despite the pandemic, despite conflict, despite all those risks. So it has been, if I can say very frankly, a Herculean effort to, to do that. And I think that has been, a, that's also been quite commendable. Rupert, 
some of the things that Shabia mentioned are also human rights issues, aren't they, around COVID? The shrinking space, for example, for asylum, inequity when it comes to vaccines. Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the world is full of inequalities uh, on many levels, but in, there had been actually, you know, quite a significant advances in many respects over the past sort of two or three decades. And I think COVID coming after the financial crisis at the, the end of the 2000s has uh, really whacked up the, the inequalities, not just in vaccine distribution, although that's pretty shocking. I mean, the figures are by the 1st of December, I think barely 8% of adults had received just one dose of vaccine in low-income countries compared to 65% in, in high-income countries. The worst of America's COVID crisis may appear behind us, but in the worldwide race to vaccinate people against COVID, Africa is falling way behind. This continent of 1.3 billion people faces a staggering shortage of vaccines. Just so that's a pretty shocking disparity. And of course, that's self-defeating because then you get the, the COVID variants uh, coming up in, in those large unvaccinated communities and then feeding back into the rest of the world again. But I think it's also affected uh, inequality in many, many other ways, because even in the, in, in the developed countries, you're seeing marginalized groups getting much more affected with COVID, much more likely to catch it, much more likely not to get good treatment, and basically at higher risk and higher mortality rates, uh, for example, among Black Americans. Danny, when I hear this, I feel like, again, we were in this situation where everybody's got a whole lot more selfish. Fear makes us selfish, and that makes it very difficult for people who are in need. Danny, you had your hand up. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm listening to Shabi and Rupert, uh, it seems to me that the pandemic has caused certain fundamentals of their organizations to be challenged. For example, Shabia, we talk about closing borders. I mean, it's even before people have had a chance to be evaluated uh, of having a legitimate reason to ask for asylum. And when Rupert talks about inequality, we're talking about economic, social, and cultural rights, which the right to health is, is a fundamental right. So in effect, the pandemic has been used by certain governments as an excuse for a force majeure uh, to say that our basic principles have got to be stopped because this is something that trumps them all. And I think that's very, very worrying. Shabir, I was just thinking about that because, of course, 2021 was the 70th anniversary of the UN Convention on Refugees. should have been an absolutely golden opportunity for the UN Refugee Agency to remind states just how important this convention is, why it exists, and why it's important exactly to allow people to claim asylum when they're fleeing persecution. In 1951, the international community adopted the United Nations Convention relating to the status of refugees. UNHCR's work helping Europe's war refugees was recognized with the Nobel Peace Prize in 1954. You haven't really had that golden opportunity this year, have you? Despite the challenges we've seen with the pandemic, I think what has been very important to put in context is actually um, those have been the exceptions, but they're not the norm. I mean, most countries do abide by their obligations under, under the convention, their national commitments, a testament to that. So it, it is important to put it in context. I think if we look at this as a human rights document, this is, this is one of the most uh, life-saving um, documents that you have out there. I mean, it's saved millions of lives over the past seven decades. For 70 years, we at the UN Refugee Agency 
have made it our mission to protect those who must flee for their lives. You have countries that uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, they're still receiving refugees. People are still accessing asylum. Um, even as we speak, we, we have uh, many emergencies around the world, uh, many situations where refugee outflows are happening. But what, one thing that I think gets lost in a lot of the narrative and the conversations and the reporting that we have about the convention, about asylum, is, is the reality of the situation. Because when you look at the statistics, and, and Imogen, this is probably not news to you, but it, but for others, it is 90% of the world's refugees are in the global south, they're in developing countries. And these are where the outflows are happening almost uh, every day or, or every month. Um, and you've got these countries that are ha having their own developmental economic um, challenges and they're still continuing to receive refugees. Um, in Niger is one example. You've got what's happening in the Sahel. It's driving uh, so many people from their homes and countries are still stepping up to receive people. So if you look at, at the reality of the refugee uh, situation worldwide, the, the norm is adherence to the convention or the obligations. And these are treated as universal because the whole notion of, of asylum, it's nothing new. It's not a UN imposed principle. This is an age old institution. It's universal. Many countries and, and values have this in ingrained or enshrined in their histories and traditions. Um, so I think that that's sort of the emphasis. And as we go on to 2022, this is definitely the mantra and, and the messaging that I would like to see. I think we need to focus more on how this is actually um, the norm and, and that those derogations or those regressions are really uh, the exceptions. And they should be rightly so condemned, but they shouldn't be accepted as, as the normal, the new normal. Rupert, well, what do you think when you hear that? I mean, you used to work at refugees before you worked at UN Human Rights. And I really take on board what Shabia is saying. We all know most refugees are in the global south. They stay as close as possible to the country they had to flee because they actually really want to go back to, to their homes. However, if you get the traditional world leaders, in inverted commas, chipping away, at these norms, let's be honest, it's happening also with some of the, the conventions around human rights. It, it always used to be said, if they start, others will, will follow. Does that worry you? Uh, yes, it does. It's kind of cup half full, cup half empty. But so as Shabia said, there are many people still adhering to conventions. The law is the law and it, it's there and it's, it's there to be used. Um, even if states don't abide by these conventions, it, it is still a stick to beat them with and to put them under pressure and so on. And that, that often is effective still. That said, I think, you know, a lot of the human rights laws and the Refugee Convention, for that matter, came, you know, in the few years following World War II. And it took, you know, two horrendous world wars in the space of uh, 20 years to wake everybody up that we, we just couldn't go on like this. And so that, you know, and you then had this incredibly fertile period following World War II, where you had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, which is a fantastic document. I mean, for any listeners who've never read it, read it. It's, it's beautifully written. I'm going to read you the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, therefore, the General Assembly proclaims this Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a common standard of achievement for all peoples and all nations to the end that every individual and every organ of society keeping this declaration constantly in mind shall strive by teaching and education to promote, respect 
for these rights and freedoms and by progressive measures, national and international, to secure their universal and effective recognition and observance. And it's about you. It's about all of us. It's about all of our rights. And it's absolutely uh, marvelously laid out. And from that, you got actually hard binding laws, uh, developed treaties on Convention Against Torture, Convention on the Rights of the Child, Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, Racial Discrimination, and so on. Now, all these have germinated and developed and, and had spin-offs and so on and become, in many cases, um, common law in, and are reflected in national laws over the ensuing decades. Then you see this sort of backlashes against them and the chipping away that you, you, you talk about. I think it, it'll take a very long time to chip away these whole edifices. They're huge and they're very solid and they're very strong. But we have lost that kind of understanding that there was after World War II of where this kind of decay can lead to. So when you see the kind of populist uh, rhetoric and the xenophobia and the racism and so on infecting what was supposedly advanced democracies in Europe or the United States or, or, or elsewhere, uh, it's worrying and you're starting to see the kind of rhetoric, the kind of language, the kind of cartoons that you saw in the 1930s in Nazi Germany. And one shouldn't take that lightly because that kind of erosion of civilized standards that have been built up so painstakingly over such a long period is very dangerous. And it, took, it didn't take Germany many years to, to sink from being a functioning democracy at the beginning of the 1930s to the, you know, to the horror of Hitler, who was democratically elected after all, and the whole Holocaust and everything that followed that. So you know, we have to guard very carefully against this kind of decay and destruction of the standards that we ourselves so painfully and knowingly created to protect ourselves from ourselves, from our worst instincts. Danny, do you want to come in there? Do you think we've lost our historical perspective? We've lost the drive that introduced these kinds of conventions? 70s well, I mean, 70s. I have a certain sympathy for things that are 70 years old for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, but my deeper point to Rupert and Shabi is that many of these conventions, A, were signed after the Second World War. So they have a certain uh, date, but also the world has gone on. And I give several examples. You both work for state organizations, interstate organizations, but there are new actors. We now have non-state actors, armed non-state actors. We have uh, ISIS. We have Al-Qaeda. Uh, those are not traditional people that you're working with. So in a sense, even with technology, the world has changed. So the real question is, are these treaties, are your organizations outdated? And I know there was discussion at UNHCR to open the convention, and people said, don't do that. It's Pandora's box. It'll be worse than it was before. So in a sense, how does one update humanitarian assistance to see how the world has changed the last 70 years? That brings me semi-neatly onto another topic I wanted to look at in this program. Just as an aside, I think there was also discussion at some point about reopening the Geneva Conventions, which their guardian, the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, resisted fiercely, saying what's in there is good. We just need to interpret it, you know, through a modern lens. The topic I wanted to come on to is Afghanistan, which, of course, really shocked us, appalled us, but probably in Geneva didn't necessarily surprise us. Victory, they believe, is theirs. 
as American troops prepare to leave Afghanistan, the Taliban promise to create what they call an Islamic government. But where does that leave millions of ordinary Afghans? Rupert, I'm going to ask you for your perception of this situation first, because, of course, you were there as a young and enthusiastic aid worker in the 1990s, I believe. So you've tracked it all this time. What's your take on on August 2021? I think it was it was deeply upsetting to to anyone who's who's followed Afghanistan for years. I mean, there are many people who've followed Afghanistan for years. It's it's kind of a bit of an addictive drug, Afghanistan. Uh, if you've been there and, and experienced the extraordinary adventures you can have in that country and the, the amazing people who live there, and. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I sort of started covering the the region in 1993. I was there, based in in Islamabad, but going in and out of uh, Afghanistan all through the first Taliban period. So that was kind of 1996 when they captured Kabul, uh, through to 2001 when they were deposed uh, by the US and other external forces. And you know, it was a really really grim period. On September 26, 1996. The Taliban roar into Kabul in pickup trucks with heavy machine guns mounted in their beds. Radio Kabul, renamed Radio Sharia, announces a lengthy list of new Taliban regulations. The new regime bans TV, videos, satellite dishes, music, and all games. I think one does have to recognize the Taliban themselves have evolved. And, and to me, that was really striking. You know, I. I have in my mind Kabul in the 1990s, which was like a urban desert. There were people were barely out and about. There were no shops. Nothing was opening. The only vehicles were Taliban technicals. Uh, you know, Hiluxes, pickup trucks full of Taliban with rocket propelled grenade launchers, and everybody else subdued, hiding or fled. No economy functioning. Nothing. Fast forward to to this year, you've got a very very different Kabul. Again, I think very depressed and, and uh, upset and so on, but on, on, a, on a much different basis. Uh, it hasn't just come out of sort of 10 years of the Soviet war and all the destruction there was in the 1970s and 80s. And what really struck me, I think, was when the Taliban entered the presidential palace where I've been, where I met President Karzai a few years ago. And they were in there and they were all taking selfies with their mobile phones. <laughs> now... Back in the 1990s, you had a Taliban who were ripping out the innards of cassettes, music cassettes, from which they found in people's cars and festooning them on their checkpoints on the roads. They were finding people's photographs, you know, an old man who had a photograph of his dead wife, just one little crumpled passport picture in his wallet. They would take it up, rip it up, and throw it in the mud and stamp on it. It was really cruel and really, really vicious. But what you see now is is an evolved Taliban. I mean, they have got mobile phones. They are taking selfies. You know, quite the extent to which and what that evolution is, what it means, how far it goes, how much it helps, I think we'll have to see as time goes by. So there are a lot of parallels and a lot of them very alarming parallels with the 1990s. There are also clearly significant differences as well. Shabia, in August 2021, the UN Refugee Agency was particularly concerned about outflows of people fleeing Afghanistan, the pressure perhaps on Pakistan, the pressure on Iran, that hasn't actually materialized. But inside Afghanistan, 
aid agencies are very concerned about the humanitarian situation. Well, this, this is actually our key concern this year as we were following events. Uh, we were saying right from the start, look, let's not forget humanitarian needs inside the country. This is where we're seeing the largest uh, displacement flows. Um, I think we have about 700,000 people displaced inside the country since uh, the beginning of the year and most of those since since August. And, uh, and, and this is what we were saying as, as the international community was sort of watching and um, deciding uh, what to do and how what the next course of action would be. This is the, the key call and the key message for us was don't forget the people inside Afghanistan. Um, you can't neglect them. This morning in Taliban-run Afghanistan, a humanitarian catastrophe is unfolding. We visited the country's only dedicated children's hospital where many are struggling to simply stay alive. You know, our deepest fears are about the impending winter. It's already freezing there. The snow has fallen. Um, people are still without adequate shelter, without basic needs. People are going hungry and starving. And uh, and they're paying the price of decades of this political situation. So this has been uh, the key concern for us. And also the fact that uh, humanitarian assistance is one part of the equation, and that needs to be supported. But uh, we can't substitute for the work that's needed to save the economy, to, to make sure that that people have livelihoods, that they there are what we call sustainable solutions for these people who have been forced to flee both within the country and outside, because let's not forget that there are, in addition to the 700,000 that were displaced this year, there are a total of 3.5 million Afghans who have been forced to flee their homes and remain all across the country. And then there are also millions who have been exiled. Uh, and for them as well, there's there's no clear road in sight. So it's, it's a it's abysmal, the humanitarian situation for many of these uh, protracted situations, but uh, definitely including Afghanistan. Danny, do you think 2021 will go down as the absolute failure of U.S. foreign policy in Biden's first year? Well, I think it uh, should be as example of the compassion of the host countries in the South toward refugees internally displaced is a shameful example to the United States and countries in the North who are closing their borders. Uh, and I think the hope of for people dealing with the Biden administration would that it would no longer be America first in terms of Trump. We would be back not only in terms of at the multilateral table, but also in terms of compassion and trying to help others who are desperately in need. And I think that's been a huge failure. Okay, well, we're just about out of time. I'm going to ask each of you what your hopes and concerns are for 2022. It can be personal as well as professional. Shabia, personally, you've got a trip coming up. Uh, I do. I have. Um, after two years, I'm hoping I, I go back and see uh, my family and go back home to Australia this, this Saturday. So I think that's going to be a significant milestone, I think, at the end of this long, dark COVID tunnel. Uh, I think it's a glimmer of hope. And I hope there there is also some uh, prospects for, for hope and and for us to be optimistic next year. Let's, uh, let's hope that this pandemic will wind down. I think we're seeing, I mean, I'm, I'm complaining about being away from home for two years, but I can't imagine what it's like to, for many refugees who've been displaced uh, for decades. Some have been born into exile. So I hope next year we can see a bit more empathy and compassion as well from, from the rest of the world. And I think as Rupert was mentioning earlier, I think we need to be more and more vigilant against these attacks and against this dehumanizing rhetoric. I think 
you know, the pandemic has shown us how fragile we are as, as individuals, as societies, but it, I hope it, it translates into something a bit more long-term and empathetic with, with the people who are just by circumstance and by no choice or means of their own have been caught up into these conflicts and situations. Rupert, what about you? Yeah, I think similar. I just like to see a world where more people wake up to the fact that, you know, if we're actually nicer to each other and, you know, try and be sensible and not get into our sort of passionate troll-like tunnels, it'll be a better place for all of us to live in. And I think this kind of monstrous thing that's developed on social media and on the internet, the the anti-vaccination stuff, which is just insane. And and then the, the viciousness and the hate and the and the so on, which you know the social media companies have really failed to to rein in. Yeah, all those kind of constraints of civilization that have been built up so so painstakingly over decades, where you know you just didn't behave in this way, it wasn't the done thing, and so on and so forth. That's all gone out the window. And it's just a free-for-all of selfishness, viciousness, and so on. So I think. I'd love to see that start to, to turn around and, and that start to become unacceptable again and uh, civilization to kind of start to reassert itself. And then I think, you know, people would cooperate better. And for example, for climate change, you have to have that. This is a massive global problem. You know, people are still coming at it from, from their own kind of selfish perspectives, whether it's maintaining jobs in specific industries or giving in to certain lobbies that have a lot of money and a lot of power and allowing that to, to overtake the massive existential crisis that's facing all of us and is just around the next corner. So we have to, we have to start cooperating again and, and thinking uh, what's good for all of us in, in a more coherent way, in a more sustained way. Danny, can you top that? Well, I mean, the buzzwords are fragility and resilience, and I'm trying to get the buzzword to be stability. Seems to me we get up every day and don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in terms of the pandemic, in terms of climate change. And I think a little more stability would be a positive thing for everyone. Okay, well, on that note, we've reached the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. 2022 is almost here. The pandemic may well still be with us for some time to come. Unfortunately, conflict and need will be with us for some time to come. But as I think Shabia and Rupert said, empathy, compassion, and just being a little nicer to each other would really get us a long way. My thanks to my guests, Shabia Mantu, Rupert Colville, and Daniel Warner. And thank you to all of you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes. From a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to an account of 10 years of war in Syria to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. 
we uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. <laughs>